At 37. Breeze doing it. At 39. Going up top. And it's caught by Dan Arnold for the touchdown. What's up? It is actually late Thursday night. Or I guess, no, that's not right. It's late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning. And uh, I figured, you know what? Let me just go in the other room and bang this out. I just watched the uh, Penguins and the Avalanche play a pretty entertaining game. Avalanche won 6-3. Or no, 5-3. Yeah, 5-3. Got a late goal. Crosby had a hat trick. Fun stuff to watch, and I figured I was a little wired. I might as well just bang out the podcast. Uh, welcome to the Sportscasters. This is Steve Bennett. It is Season 8, Episode 19. Good show for you today. Greg Bishop uh, will join us after the intro. Greg is a senior writer from SI. He uh, is an interesting guy. He's from Tacoma, Washington. And he went to Syracuse for college. And it turns out his roommate, or one of his good friends at Syracuse, was Jeff Passan. Of course, the original guest on this podcast way back in 2011. And still a good friend to the show today. And they were both in each other's weddings. I didn't know this until, I don't know, 12 hours ago. After I had booked Greg. But uh, Greg's from Tacoma, went to Syracuse. uh, Worked at the New York Times and left that so he could go back to Seattle where he lives now. And he's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. And he has a cover story this week on Drew Brees. Now you know when I seen Drew Brees as a cover story for SI. I was reaching out to that writer and I reached out to Greg. And in a minute, you can hear 30 minutes uh, on Drew Brees and the piece that Greg wrote, which is a cover story for SI. Also on the show today is Sean McIndoe, uh, Down Goes Brown on Twitter, uh, who is the author of one of the book club books of the month. Uh, And Sean and I talk about his really great book about the history of the NHL, kind of a wonky history. And we do squeeze in a couple seconds of the Sabres. You know, it's an interesting time for me. I was thinking about this before I turned the mic on. The Saints haven't lost since uh, no, uh, September 9th. Now, that could change. Of course, they play tonight. So they play the Cowboys on Thursday Night Football, their second Thursday game in a row. And, of course, that could change. They could easily lose to a, a pretty hot Cowboys team. And by the time you're hearing this, you'll say, oh, Steve, well, they lost today. And, you know, that would be what it what it is. But they haven't lost as I talk right now since September 9th. And the Sabres just won 10 games in a row. And it's the first time they've done that since 2006 and only the third time in the history of the team that they've done that. And here's the thing about the Sabres, and I'll say this very honestly. Uh, they're very fun right now. And there's been a long time where they were the opposite of fun. No fun. Just zero fun. You would go to a game, and it didn't really matter if they won the game or lost the game. It just didn't make a difference. And there was even one season where we were pretty much rooting for them to lose them. And it just wasn't fun, and it sucked going there, and you didn't want to be there. And going into this season, after they won the lottery, you know, and there was a lot of optimism that that had finally happened for them, what I wanted was just a team to care about. I wanted to be able to care about them the way I had for so many years, and they've accomplished that. But as it gets... As each win piles up, 
it's almost like the expectation increases a little bit and what you hope for grows. Like going into this year, all I wanted was to have a fun team that was learning. I wanted Darlene and Eichel and the young players on the team to uh, get experiences and to grow and to develop and to show me that they are the stars that I think they are and that they can be. And it's like, here we are, you know, at the end of November, and they're ahead of their win total from February last year. And it's like, well, now I sort of want more, but I don't want to be greedy either. Uh, so the Sabres have been really fun. The Saints have obviously been very fun. So I'm on a little bit of a run. Oklahoma, who's another team I root for, although I find it hard to watch them sometimes, uh, has a chance to make the playoffs, which I guess is all you can ask for every year from a college team is have a chance championship week to be a playoff team. You can't can't beat that. So it's been a nice little run here. Braves made the playoffs this year, another team I root for. Uh, so a nice little run. I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for this show, which is also on a great run. Uh, if you want more information about the show, you can follow me on Twitter. Please do, at sports underscore casters. Uh, you can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. I have a stack of books that I promised to people that need to go out in the mail, and I promise I will get them out uh, this week. I'm sorry if you're waiting on one for me, but it is coming. Uh, you can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com, if you feel like you need to remind me about that. Don't forget you can find this episode of the show and all episodes on our SoundCloud page, uh, which is soundcloud.com slash sports-casters, or on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you find podcasts. Also, I did an Adams Division podcast with Peter Winson. Uh, one last plug for that. You can find that on his feed, Greetings from Allentown, uh, which you can follow on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. Uh, he is a great dude, and we had a lot of fun ranking the Survivor Series shows from 1987 to 1998. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with Greg Bishop. We'll talk about Drew Brees, do that interview first. Then I'll be back for a book club update. Uh, I got a confirmation from Keith the Cop about Permanently Suspended, the Anthony Cumia book. I'll talk to you about that in the book club. Uh, then we will close out Sean McIndoe's book, McIndoe's book, excuse me. And then um, we will be back for one last thing, some more plugs, and close out episode 19 of season 8. Uh, I think we'll do about 22 this year before I take a break for Christmas. I'd like to get a few more in before Christmas and New Year's, and then I'd like to be back pretty quickly after New Year's, especially if the Saints are on a bit of a run uh, to go through the playoffs and get Season 9 started, which I'm really excited about. All right, let's take a break. We're going to be right back with uh, Greg Bishop. Our first guest today is from Tacoma, Washington, and he's a graduate of Syracuse University. He's worked for the New York Times and is currently an SI senior writer. He's making his debut on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Greg Bishop. What's going on, Greg? How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. You couldn't debut with a better topic. I mean, literally, there's my daughter, my wife, maybe my mom. And then Drew Brees. That's like my human being rankings. That's great. Uh, your mom might be kind of insulted by that, you know? But well, I, I did put her ahead. It. I put her ahead. <laughs> I think you said maybe, though. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll give mom three for sure. You know, what, one, two, three is basically like a, like a, you know, how do you rank your mom, your daughter, your wife ahead of each other? It's like the same. They're like in a group, you know? 
they like sit alone on a on a branch, but right below them is you know Drew Brees and Eddie Vedder, and my brothers. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, it's like picking your favorite ice cream. Right, right. yeah. You I mean, like, like yeah, it's like you wish you had time to eat all all the flavors, but sometimes Sundays on one, you got to make a choice, and my choice is usually Drew on Sundays. You know. Uh, sure. But I've been a Saints fan since 1987. I actually became a Saints fan the day that they lost to the Vikings in the playoffs. And the reason was just because my I was watching football with my dad that day, and he told me the story of the team and how they had been these losers who wore these bags on their head, and for the first time they were good, but they weren't better than the 49ers, and so they were playing this game against this team that they won like six games more than that year, and it started off 10 nothing Saints, and the Superdome just looked amazing, and they looked amazing, and it was going crazy. And then for the next hour, two, three hours, I just watched them die this miserable, slow 48-10 to 10 death, and I said, those are my guys. Those are my guys. And as hard as it was from that day until, you know, 2006, with a few seasons in between, you know, 1992, they won the NFC West, and... In 2000, Jim Hassel put together a great year with Aaron Brooks, and they won the NFC West again and won a playoff game finally. But Drew Brees is literally the the guy that the day he came, you know, all my dreams as a sports fan came true. And, um, you know, I think it was Wendell Pierce in the article had a quote that I loved in your peer, in your post where he, um, let's see, I tweeted it so I could remember it when I was talking to you. He said, I never saw a Joe Lewis box, but man, if it isn't special to be alive and watch Drew Brees play every Sunday. And, you know, that's how I feel. So tell me a little bit about this article. Tell me about the background because, you know, it seems like you started in October. Was the original point of featuring him because he was going to break the passing record? Yeah, you know what was interesting about the the way it came together is I remember being in Canada uh, working on a story that I haven't written yet on the – following up on that bus crash where all those hockey players died. I covered that initially when it happened. And I remember my boss calling me and saying in a piece on uh, Drew Brees essentially looking at how a guy who's almost 40 and a guy who's obviously about half that uh, have come to work in such a symbiotic way. And I thought it was interesting, but then I I was thinking about it when I talked to him and and thinking more like the passing record thing snuck up on me. I I cover the NFL. Uh, I know Drew Brees is an amazing player. Nobody's disputing that. And yet, you know, like imagine if Tom Brady was approaching the all-time passing record. You know, we would have been talking about it for years. And it would have been like this thing like, oh, you know, this coronation and these rings. And, you know, well, there was a fair amount of fanfare for Brees. It struck me as less so than it would have been for Brady or Manning or Rogers. And the, fa- the fact that it had, <laughs> the fact that it snuck up on me a little, I felt like there was something worth exploring there. So then we started talking about, you know, uh, what could we do in terms of just the Breeze story? And to me, the most interesting thing was to look at his place in NFL history, to make the argument that he, he potentially is the greatest player of all time, not the, not the 25th greatest, you know, and, I, I just think that like the idea was to like explore why we look at him this way, and whether or not that was fair, you know. And I mean, as recently as this October, he was ranked in a Bleacher Report poll of general managers as the best player in the league right now. And you know, I just don't. I know we're splitting hairs here, and I, I use that phrase in the story a few times, but 
I just feel like that's not good enough for Breeze. It should be higher. We should be talking about is he the best player, single player in the NFL, and why don't we? And so that that was really what I wanted to start exploring. So then it was a matter of can I get him? You know, we had to work out the access with his people. Ended up taking two trips to New Orleans to see him coach flag football uh, once for a practice in which I was able to see his son's birthday uh, party as well because it was held in the same place and once for a series of playoff games. And then in the interim, I made probably 25 phone calls. I uh, wanted to speak to a lot of people in New Orleans who I figured viewed Breeze the way I think more people are starting to view him now. And I wanted to talk to people that were close to him just about how he was able to position himself for these kinds of debates. And so you know, that's kind of the long version of how everything came together in terms of the story. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, if it was Brady chasing that record, that would have been a Sunday night game, not a Monday night game. You know, it just feels, you know, it's like just a little distinction. Like it would have been a little bit higher up in the packing order for whatever reason. At least I feel that way. Yeah, and I got a lot of stuff on, on Twitter the last couple of days about, like, people know he's good. And, like, that's not the premise of the story. At least I, that's not what I intended it to be. You know, it's, it's less that I'm arguing that he deserve, needs to be looked at as, like, a good quarterback. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows he's a Hall of Fame quarterback. The question is, why do we talk about Brady, Rodgers, Manning, and those guys one way and talk about Drew Brees in another? And the, the, the differentiation there is small but important. You know, it's not that he's never played well or that we just discovered he's good at football. It's that we should be talking about him as the best player in NFL history, and for some reason we don't. Yeah, and I, Deadspin also crushed the article for whatever reason. Just couldn't see the point yeah. at all. Not my first time, not my last. Yeah, they just didn't see the point at all. Like, it was... You know, like, okay, you you missed the point. Like, if you want to put Brady in another league, I get it, right? He's got five rings. So it's easy to kind of put him in this other place. But what, it, like, when you think about Peyton Manning, Breeze beat Peyton Manning head-to-head in a Super Bowl. I know it's not as simple as that. Football game isn't as simple as the quarterback playing the quarterback. But sometimes it is when it's Peyton Manning versus Drew Brees in Super Bowl Forty Four, right? And one guy threw a pick six in the last three minutes of the game. And, you know, another guy was in complete control. And played almost a perfect game and was the MVP. And, like, Aaron Rodgers. What does Aaron Rodgers have that Drew Brees doesn't? Well, he has the MVP he stole from him in 2011. Like, even if even if you want to say Rodgers should have won that, 58 to 60? Come on. Right. Yeah, and that's Rodgers is the one that gets me when we're talking about these comparisons. Because, you know, Brees, Brees had a fall from grace the same way that, that Rodgers did in the draft. You know, Breeze also suffered injuries in this big chunks of seasons the same way Rodgers did. Uh, Breeze is legendarily competitive and keeps this list of slights and builds off them. And Breeze and, and him both have one Super Bowl. And, and when you look at uh, all those things in totality, I don't think I don't see how you can make the argument that Aaron Rodgers is, is in any way head and shoulders above Drew Breeze. To me, they're, they're similar guys who've done similar things. And we should be looking at them in the same way. And so that's really kind of what I was hoping to explore when I set out to do the piece initially. Right. And I think a fair point you made is like, okay, you want to say Rogers is better. Okay. You could probably make that argument. You want to say Manning is better. You could probably make that argument. But don't forget, you could make the argument that Breeze is better too. You know, that was what I... Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think that's... That was exactly what I was going for. Yeah. And I think people that didn't really read it closely or that didn't want to take a look at the nuance, they might think that I was arguing that we haven't given Breeze his due at all. And I don't think that's true. But I think the difference is 
you know, why why haven't we given him full due? You know, why do we look at him still as this guy who overcame everything when Rodgers and Brady and Manning overcame stuff too? And this is a point I really wanted to, to make about with you because I was, I was reading yesterday about the Redskins, you know, making the, the claim for Reuben Foster. And um, I was thinking about in my head about how they had been the team that had made the claim for Junior Gallette as well or uh, took Junior Gallette away from the Saints um, when the Saints decided to cut bait when he was charged with, uh, I think it was a fight on a beach. Um, but I always look back at that Junior Gallette moment as kind of a changing point for the Saints when they made a decision to change the culture of the locker room and to really build a team around the values and the um, I don't want to be too generic I don't want to be too too poetic about this but they decided to change let's just put it keep it simple they decided to change the culture in the locker room it kind of started with cutting bait despite a huge salary cap disaster uh, with Junior Glatt and Kenny Stills and Jimmy Graham, all those are different. I don't want to lump them together as the same, but it, it was a, it was an overall overhaul. And I look at it through Breeze's eyes, and like this is his locker room now, his culture. You know, the culture he always wanted, the way the team talks. It's like it it took a while. There was a little bit in between where maybe they got carried away, and and like even Sean Payton said the other day, the biggest mistake we ever made here was letting Malcolm Jenkins go. It was like when they were right. turning over the Super Bowl team, they kind of lost their way a little bit, and it feels like now it's back to that culture, that Drew Brees team culture, and I think that's why they've been so successful the last two years. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think uh, to your point, it's like not only did they build a round Brees, but uh, they've really, um, you know, adapted to the modern NFL. You know, that means, you know, in, in some season, that means his, he's throwing – passes at a shorter distance and, and, you know, really being efficient. On uh, some seasons, that means Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara are becoming the first tandem in NFL history to rush for, you know, to gain 1,500 yards from scrimmage each. And this season, it's using a, a gimmick quarterback who's really changed how they do offense. And all these things, I, I think, speak to, like, Sean Payton and Drew Brees have been together forever. They, they've changed offensive football in the NFL, uh, and, and they've been building from their first Super Bowl to now back to the point where they can win it again. And to me, this is like sort of a culmination of a long time together, a lot of adaptation in terms of how they're going to play and building the locker room and Breeze's image. And I think when you put all those things together, you have what we're seeing now, which is potentially the best team in football, uh, at least one of the top three scariest offenses in football. And there are three pretty scary ones out there right now. And you know, a team that I think is, if not the favorite to win the Super Bowl, at minimum a favorite to be playing for it, you know, pretty deep into January. One of my favorite things to do every week is to watch Drew Brees' press conference after the game because it kind of grounds me after every game. It, it makes me feel – see, because when you when you watch a Drew Brees press conference, you just – it's the same every week. It doesn't matter if the Saints won by 40 or lost by 40, which admittedly hasn't happened this year, but – I mean, the only way I was able to sleep last January, that night after the Minnesota game, was to to hear Drew Brees and like this is gonna sound silly, but to know he was okay or something like I need to hear him. And and one thing I love about his press conferences, and I wanted to talk to you about this, is his memory 
is so sick. Like listening to him talk about football plays. Like someone will ask him a question about a screen pass in the game and why it was so successful. And he will respond with like, well, we ran that play in 2009 against the Patriots on Monday Night Football. And we only hit it for like 13 yards. But I remember saying we need to come back to that, Sean. And now it's 2018 and we came back to that. I'm thinking like this dude is a savant. And I was just wondering like (laughs) in your dealings with him, like if you had any examples of (laughs) where he just kind of blew you away with some kind of random fact like that or or if you got this impression of his like his computer like brain for the team and the plays and the way he sees the field. Yeah, that's a great question, and I definitely saw that. You know, there were there were anecdotes he told me from his high school days that he thought fit into his place in history. You know, one was how he had almost quit playing football, and that, you know, not only did he remember that that happened, but he remembered he had pulled in the driveway and told his mom, and he remembered what she said, and then he remembered deciding to stay with it, and then he remembered the quarterback who was in front of him who got hurt and never played again and became a real estate agent and how they're still friends and I mean, this was all based on a question of like him setting all these records, and he rem- he's telling me essentially how unlikely some of this was by taking you through a story from 30 years ago and how it connects to today. And um, you know, it was just impressive uh, to to see that kind of recall. You know, I'd written a story about it for the New York Times in 2009 about you know Katrina and more of the usual stuff and how he lifted the city and what might be possible and. You know, this was before they won the Super Bowl. He remembered that interview, you know, and he remembered, you know, uh, what the story had been about. And he had a lot of questions about what I wanted to do this time. And, you know, it was just like, you know, you could see that kind of memory and recall. And that's sort of what I was talking about with the piece, though. Like, right, we don't hear that as much about Breeze the way we did about Peyton Manning or or uh, Tom Brady or guys that are sort of pegged that way. And to me, that's what I, when I when I think you look at him compared to those guys, these are the similarities. Like, there are many human beings that have that kind of recall. Their names are Breeze, Brady, and Manning, and like you know, they are more similar than we think. Right. You know, another thing I want to talk to you about. I've been down to New Orleans a few times since he's been there, obviously, to get to watch him play in the Superdome, and um, they've only lost one time my entire life when I've seen him, and that was in 2006 in Pittsburgh in a thrilling game, actually. Um, but considering their overall win percentage as a franchise, I've been pretty lucky to only see them lose once and. Thank God they've never lost in Buffalo because that would just ruin my life. Especially that week, it would be miserable. But um, the thing there, here's the thing I, I I love about Breeze, which I wanted to talk to you about, and that is he's never let me down. And I don't mean like on the field, even. I mean like when you when you draw up an athlete that you want to be your guy. Like Jane Levy is a really good friend of the show, and she wrote a book about Mickey Mantle and how Mickey Mantle was her guy. And we talked about how, when she was writing the book about him, how she had to accept some things about who Mickey was, right, and, and his flaws. And maybe there's some stuff I don't know about Drew Brees. I, I don't claim to, to know him personally or anything like that. I've, I've never even met him. But the in 2018, with the cameras and the access and the things we learn about people that we never would have learned 30, 50 years ago, he's never let me down. You know, when a story comes out about Drew Brees, it's that, oh, well, he walked home from practice tonight and 30 kids were at the practice and they followed him. So he stopped at Jimmy John's and bought them all sandwiches and they followed him all the way home and then said goodbye. You know, or it's like, you know, Drew Brees did this for the community or he coached his kids and he did. This. It's like 
like everything about him. We were talking about my mom earlier. My mom loves Drew Brees because like Ellen loves Drew Brees or something. <laughs> like it's this it's this guy that like he should have been a saint. Like that's the team he should be on, right? The Saints because it's this image that I pray there's never a Kraken because you never know. But like, tell me a little bit about being in the city with him and and him off the field and and how you feel about him as a person. Yeah, you know, I, I think like you said, these things are always tricky because you just never really know exactly what a guy's about. But I will say that it's remarkable this day and age that a guy like Drew has never really had, you know, the same kind of things we've seen even even with other star quarterbacks. You know, Aaron, that's all public on social media. Uh, Brady and his, uh, you know, long, yeah, the longtime body coach and that guy's, you know, uh, been sued by the FDA before. And like, I know them pretty well, but you know, he's obviously, there's been a, a fair bit of controversy surrounding that. And Breeze is the guy, like you said, where the anecdotes are, what he's done in the community, the foundation work, uh, the flag football league he started and how he wants to take that nationwide as he sees this game that he loves that's under assault for concussions and head trauma. And, you know, even the narrative, uh, you know, around his, his uh, career, which is, you know, this short quarterback who had surgery and came back stronger and went to New Orleans when nobody else wanted him and lifted the city to this first Super Bowl after 09. And I think all that sometimes plays into, like, the difference in the narrative with him is that, like, he is billed as this good guy. He is a guy who overcame things. He did you know, have to do a lot in order to become the kind of player and person that he is. And so, you know, I think in some ways that's refreshing and in some ways it's different. And I think it also plays into the fact that we maybe don't look at him as like this psycho killer quarterback. And it's partly because off the field, that's what he's not. Right. Like I forgot last week, right. There was the Instagram video. It's like, Oh, my wife had the kids ready for bed. And then dad came home and it's him just like whipping footballs to each kid and like this crazy underhand toss and they're all diving on the couch. And it's just like, Oh man, what a cool dad. You know what I mean? Like I have a a cool dad too. So I'm not I know I I may have ranked him uh, below drew earlier, but I do love him. Uh, And maybe he's ahead too, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, like it's just, I don't know, you know, when I say that this guy made all my dreams as a sports fan come true, like, that's part of it. You know, I never had to apologize to anyone for him, never had to feel embarrassed for anything he did or has done. He's never done anything but, like, make me happy. Even, right. you know, like, I can't think, like, what was the worst moment as Drew Brees as the football quarterback of your favorite team? And it's like, well, nothing that has anything to do with him. It's him winning a playoff game in San Francisco two times in the fourth quarter and the defense letting him down or him winning a playoff game in Minnesota that they were down 17 points at halftime two times in the last three minutes and the defense letting him down. Like those are the low points, some of his higher ones. But um, the sportscaster here with Greg Bishop, who wrote a really great cover story for SI, which is a badass cover picture too, by the way, I'm going to have to go buy two or three of those. Um, right. Because uh, I have all the Drew Brees cover, cover stories um, hanging out and I've kind of, went to SI, I read on the iPad usually now um, because I can get it quicker, but I'm going to have to go buy that one physically. A um, couple more things, and I'll let you go about Drew Brees. Uh, how important do you think an MVP award is to his legacy? Do you think it's, it is the thing that is kind of holding him back from being in that upper echelon that he's never won an MVP? You know, I, th- I think it plays into the story I tried to write and the fact that, like, people that say he's been recognized 
uh, clearly haven't seen that he's never won an MVP award. I think in terms of legacy, though, uh, the most important thing for him would be another title. You know, okay. I think one thing that holds him back is the, you know, this idea that like, and, and and I think this is sort of unfair to him, but like when you look at guys that have won multiple Super Bowls, you know, the best quarterbacks in NFL history for the most part have won at least two. And I think what, what's not fair is that that centers on so much beyond him. It centers on what kind of defense do they put together? How did those guys play? Uh, you know, how is the health of the team that season? All these million factors that go into winning football games. But I do think, like, I think you could look potentially at a scenario here that's perfect for him. You know, this idea that, like, he wins MVP this year. I think he's clearly the front runner. I think in part, they should give it to him as a lifetime achievement award for all the years he should have won it and didn't, especially the one you referenced when Rogers won. Yeah. And he set the uh, yeah the all-time passing record that year. And so, you know, to me, say say he wins an MVP this year and wins a second Super Bowl, I think we view him in a totally different light. And it's not just that we viewed him before as a poor quarterback. It's that before we viewed him as maybe the 10th best quarterback in NFL history or the 8th or the 6th. And I think if he wins the MVP in another Super Bowl – you know, you're looking at three or four, you know, which is pretty intense company. Brady, Joe Montana, you know, I mean, these are like the best players in the history of the league. And Drew deserves to be right up there with him, I think, either way. But if he does something like that this season, if he does win another title, if he does win MVP, I think that there's, there's very little argument that that's, you know, the echelon he belongs in. And I'll take it one step further. What if he goes through Tom Brady for that Super Bowl and he's 2-0 and in Super Bowls with wins over Brady and Manning? And by the way, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and by the way, <laughs> by the way, an NFC Championship game against Brett Favre, divisional playoff game against Kurt Warner. You know, he's beaten a lot of Pro Bowl quarterbacks in playoff games. And again, I know it's not as simple as that, but uh, it is worth pointing out. You know, in my like, I don't, I can't get myself to think about things like the Super Bowl, especially after the way the playoffs have ended. I mean, since the Saints won the Super Bowl, they've lost three playoff games that have names. And you know, when you lose a playoff game with a name something fucked up happened, right? Like it was the catch three in San Francisco in 2011, the beast quake game in Seattle, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And then the, uh, uh, the Minnesota or Minneapolis miracle, whatever they call it from last year, which clearly I'm not over yet, but, um, right. And so I think like history there is on their side. I think that we are in a space where this just might be some sort of magical thing that's happening. And, you know, maybe I think the sentiment is a good sentiment to have is that maybe they peaked too early. Whereas I think this is a dominant team that's been building this way for a long time. And I've liked their chances a lot, you know, when we look a month or two into the future. And I'm not even sure they've peaked. But uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who's a big Red Sox fan. And, you know, obviously Drew Brees wears number nine for Ted Williams. And I'm like, I just keep thinking that maybe that Minnesota miracle last year was Aaron Boone hitting the home run. And that, you know, this is the next year, the year after that, and we're the Red Sox, and like put whoever in front of us because we just this has just got to be it. But like I said, I, I try to temper my feelings like that, obviously, as a fan who's been burned. But um, I just keep thinking about the 2003 Red Sox for whatever reason, and uh, I know we've already won one, so it's a little bit different. But I just keep thinking about Aaron Boone hitting that home run. And my friend, who had been a Red Sox fan, his whole life was at Yankee Stadium that night, and he said that his feet, his feet hit the parking lot before the ball hit the ground. He's like, I was out of there so fast. But uh, 
man, I think of that. Uh, Greg Bishop is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, and uh, his cover story on Drew Brees uh, is on this week's edition of Sports Illustrated. And uh, you can find Greg on Twitter, too, which is pretty cool, as long as you're nice to him. Sometimes, you know, Greg, people can be a little jerky on that Twitter for whatever reason. But if you're going to be nice, I will tell you he's at Greg Bishop SI on Twitter, uh, where you can follow him. And he's up in Seattle. What's it like in Seattle today? What's it like in December in Seattle? Or I guess it's still yeah, November, kind probably of. Probably not shocking to you, but it's cloudy and rainy. Yeah. You'll never. Kind of our typical uh, fall, fall uh, winter weather. Well, you'll never believe what it's like here right now. Go ahead, take a guess. <laughs> Snowing, I'm yes, sure. We got know. about six yeah. inches of snow, I think. <laughs> But uh, look, this is fun because anytime I can get someone in and just gush about Drew Brees for a half an hour, I'll sign up for that in a second. I appreciate you getting back to me. And I can tell you that, God, I I can't wait. I hope that he has another chance to play and win a Super Bowl again. But, man, I've almost never been so excited as I am for the day I get to go to Canton and watch him be in shine at the football fame because so many of my people I love and care about had so much fun when Jim Kelly went in, um, I, and I remember thinking, like, someday my quarterback's going to go in, and I'm going to go there and do that too, and I can't wait for it. So thanks for writing this article and for pointing out what I've been preaching for a long time is that, like, okay, sure, it's okay to say Rodgers and Brady are better, but just make sure you're at least considering that Drew Brees might be better too. So thank you so much. Anything else you want to plug or anything you want to say about SI? or? No, I really any- appreciate you having me today, and I, and I also appreciate your reading comprehension because – what you took from the story was what I was going for. So if one person uh, thought that was right, I'll take it. Yeah, you hear that, Deadspin? You missed the point, you dummies. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, usually, by the way, usually I lay out a little bit more and let the guests talk, and maybe I ramble a little bit. I'm sorry, but you understand the passion for the subject. You know, I might have got carried away yeah, a little bit. But... No worries, man. Hopefully we're talking about the Saints in a couple months here in a whole different context. So, yeah. You know, anytime. If, Appreciate if, you having me. If Drew Brees, you know, if we – if we finish this, you got to come back and we'll take a victory lap together. I'll give you some credit. Happy like, to, happy to. <laughs> All right, buddy. Thank you so much. Thanks. No problem. Appreciate you having me. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Greg Bishop for being on the podcast today And allowing me to uh, spend 30 minutes gushing about one of my favorite topics Drew Brees Hope that was uh, as good for you as it was for me. Uh, Book Hub update. Let's go through some things real quick. Uh, First, I want to mention David Grisbowski has a book called Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gala. And uh, David does a really great job kind of promoting this book on Twitter. Um, I really want to encourage everyone to follow him there. He's at David, G-R-Z-Y TV. He does giveaways all the time. Uh, And we're going to have David on sometime before Christmas. Uh, as soon as I can finish the book uh, to talk about it, Mr. All Around the Life of Tom Gala. Uh, also, in a minute, we are going to take a break and we are going to welcome Down Goes Brown onto the podcast. Uh, Sean has a book out called The Down Goes Brown History of the NHL, 
the world's most beautiful sport, the world's most ridiculous league. And uh, it's a really great look at the NHL and its history, and we're going to do 30 minutes on it in a second. Uh, but I want to encourage you, 15 bucks for a hardcover book on Amazon Prime right now. Great Christmas gift. We talk about that in the interview. I uh, really love this book. Definitely give it my recommendation. Last week, I mentioned that I had reached out to Keith the Cop, who is Anthony Cumia from the Opie and Anthony show's right-hand man. Uh, Anthony is out there on every podcast right now promoting his book, which is called Permanently Suspended, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Radio's Most Notorious Shock Jock. Uh, and I reached out to Keith, and Keith said, let's do it. And I waited for a while and didn't hear from anyone. And then I wrote Keith back, and then Keith said, let me check. And then the publisher did finally reach out and said, hey, it was just a miscommunication, but we did send a book. Uh, so it looks like this is a go. Um, Anthony Cumia should join us hopefully as well before Christmas to talk about his book, Permanently Suspended, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Radio's Most Notorious Shock Jock. So I'm really excited about this one. Anthony's been on the show before, and uh, I'm excited to have him on again. And... Um, Really looking forward. Uh, really looking forward to that. Uh, so, Mister All Around, the life of Tom Gala and Anthony Cumia. That's where we're at right now, right? We finished with Jane. We finished with Jeff, uh, Timothy Hornbaker, the jerk off who wrote the wrestling book, is going to blow us off. So, he's dead to me. We finished Mister John Feinstein last week. His book, Quarterback, uh, is also a great Christmas gift if you're looking for one as well. So that's where we're at. Let's get Sean in and bang this one out. Uh, Down Goes Brown. We had a great talk. I think you're going to love this. Let's take a break. Uh, We'll do the interview with Sean McIndoe now, and then I'll be back uh, for some more plugs and one last thing. All right, our next guest is affectionately known as Down Goes Brown. He's a hockey humorist who also writes a great column for The Athletic and has a new book out about the history of the NHL, which we're going to break down now. He's been on a few times, and we're happy to have him back and grateful he allowed us to help him promote his book. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Sean McIndoe. How's it going, Sean? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for uh, for being back on. Yeah, thank you for having me. The book is uh, The Down Goes Brown History of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport, the world's most ridiculous league. And I'm going to tell you what, Sean, I've bought four copies already for Christmas gifts uh, because it's just it's a perfect Christmas gift, right? I mean, it's it's just so perfect um, for hockey fans in the family. And uh, I've already bought, like I said, four of them. Uh, my wife is like, my wife, she calls it the book, right? She'll be like, well, what about the book? Would that work for them? <laughs> <laughs> so um just really I like ex- it. Yeah, really I ex- like it. No, that 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 is I mean I I hope that people uh um will uh will do the same because it it is a book that uh, in theory should uh, should appeal to a lot of fans whether whether you're talking about someone who's a relatively new fan doesn't really know any of the the history stuff or somebody who uh, is is a bit of a history nerd, and and maybe there's going to be a few things in there that uh, they've never seen before. Uh, I think uh, uh, it should be uh, it should be a book that uh, lots of different types of fans enjoy. So uh, yeah, I, I strongly encourage everyone to 
get get your Christmas shopping all done in one shot and uh, just give everyone the same gift this year. Well, here's what I'm going to say about it. Last kind of ass-kissing thing about it, and then we'll go on and we'll talk about it a bit. One, you can put it in a stocking or a box, so it works either way there. And I think the best thing about it, and this is a huge compliment, I think, is you could be a 7-year-old hockey fan or a 70-year-old hockey fan and enjoy the book just as much. You know, I don't think... Like when I was reading, like, well, actually, I was at the Sabres and Lightning game a couple of weeks ago, uh, at the at the arena in Buffalo, and I was thirty eight, guy who just turned fifty, and his son, freshman in college. So, three kind of levels there. We all had read it and all, you know, enjoyed it and spent the whole second intermission talking about it. So, that's that's my sort of pitch for you that. Look at it. it. Doesn't matter how old the person is, or if you need a stocking stuffer or something to fit in a box, it works both ways. So, down goes Brown. History of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport, the world's most ridiculous league. All right. So now let's talk about why we're both praising it so much, uh, or at least why I am. Um, I had a lot of fun. First of all, learning. I think it's the number one thing that I enjoyed about it because, yeah, I knew there was teams before the original six, but. You know, I knew there was other teams on the Stanley Cup, you know, but I didn't know much context or much, you know, much detail behind that. I think I overrated a little bit how much I knew about the origins of the league. And I think the first third of the book really does a good job sort of laying out the context and the growing pains and the teams that come, the teams that go, the teams that stay in limbo. You know, like they would shut down a team, but they'd be like, but it'll probably be back. And they would like sit in this NHL limbo for a few years before like going away officially. Talk to me a little bit about kind of digging up the research on all that and putting it together and and sort of discovering the context for something almost 100 years old. Was it challenging? Was it fun? Was it tell me a little bit about kind of the first third of the book and putting together all that maybe lost history? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting because I suspect that there'd be a lot of fans who would be in the same boat that that you're in, uh, in the sense that they're not all that familiar with the first 25 years or so of, of the NHL's history, and that's because the NHL itself kind of very strongly gives off this impression that the history of the league begins with the original six, and it begins with Rocket Richard and Gordie Howe and. Uh, and these guys, and and certainly that was a golden era for the NHL. It was the era where the league stabilized. It was the era where the first truly iconic superstars emerge, and the game really resembles uh, the game that we know now. But there is this whole fascinating quarter of a century that precedes that uh, that uh, I think has been has been largely kind of lost and and lost um, not in the sense that it's that it's all that hard to find. I mean, that from a research perspective, it's it's not like this stuff is buried out there, but it's it's been almost um, lost as a conscious choice by by the league and its fans to say, you know what, we're just going to start the timer seventy five years ago with the original six era, and and then you know I think that's a loss for a lot of fans because a lot of the stuff that was going on then was was very interesting, very strange, very uh, um, you know a lot of unusual stories, uh, very fascinating stories. 
And a lot of the stuff that was happening was ends up setting the stage for what's going to come. I mean, a lot of the teams that we think of as being teams that emerged and, and markets that emerged in the modern era uh, show up briefly in that uh, pre-original six era where you've got markets like St. Louis and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia briefly getting NHL teams and then losing them. And, uh, uh, you know, even the stuff that goes before that where the, uh, where, where you got the league with starting off with four teams, not an original six, it's, it's an original four. And, and, uh, you know, of which one of them folds almost immediately. And you, you pretty much have a league that, that within a few weeks of its existence is, is threatening to go out of business because because an arena burns down um you know there's a there's a ton of stuff like that that's in there and i think a lot of it for fans will either be new or it'll be the kind of thing where you sort of go you know what i do sort of remember something about this or i you know i have kind of wondered why why do the ottawa senators have stanley cup banners when they haven't won a stanley cup since they came into the league in 1993 and and that sort of thing so um i I didn't when i was writing the book i didn't want to spend a ton of time on that era because I, I do understand that I, I think people they want to get up ahead to the era that they remember or that you know at the very least that they, their parents era where they, that they remember hearing the stories of um, but I did want to lay out a lot of that because you know a it's very interesting and B it sort of becomes the foundation of what's to come in the original six era and beyond one of the great things about the first third of the book too is the names you know, you, you, you're reading and you go, okay, Norris, that's why we have the Norris Trophy. Or, okay, that's yeah. Vesna. And, and, again, that's something you kind of know as a fan. Like, oh, well, it's the Vesna Trophy because there was some guy, you know, back in the, the early days. And, you know, he owned a team or was a governor or something. You know, you like you kind of know. But, you know, I really appreciated kind of, again, just building a little bit more context to who these guys were and why they were so important. And the other thing I was doing – I was goofing around with one of my friends. I was like, imagine, you know, TSN. And they're like, they come on and start the start. I couldn't say ESPN because they would never start a show like this because they're jerks. But I was like, imagine TSN and they start the show and they're like, the uh, the Buffalo Sabres have sold Jack Eichel uh, for $1 million. And um, yep. turns out that might not happen because uh, Terry Pagula's brother uh, now owns the uh, Red Wings, and he's not cool with it. Um, so we could have a potential issue here. Uh, more, more in yeah. five minutes. You know, so it's like crazy. I was just like some of these things that happened in the book. I was goofing around and and like saying them out loud as if they were stories on TSN, and it kind of we were we were just laughing about the absurdity of some of it and how wow, this shit really happened. This is this is yeah. a ridiculous league in a fun way. It is. I mean, there, there's a lot of stories that are that are uh, very strange of things that happened, uh, and some of the stories of things that almost happened or were about to happen uh, before before something happened and they fell through. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it is kind of interesting to imagine some of these stories playing out in the modern era where we get these up to the minute updates and and all of this stuff and picture it happening back then where the earliest you were going to hear about it was maybe in the next day's newspaper and, and maybe not even then uh there was a lot of uh, a lot of weird stuff going on but yeah you're right the idea of uh tsn or sportsnet or wherever uh cutting into a broadcast to to tell you that uh some star player had just been sold for an amount of money roughly equal to the value of the entire franchise would uh definitely definitely get your attention i wanted to tell you a kind of a cool story i was reading the uh 
the three centers chapter. And, um, you know, before we get to that, a cool thing, another cool thing I want to mention about the book, and I kind of want to ask you if you kind of structured it this way. The best way to read it absolutely is from page one on, but you don't have to read it that way, right? Most of the chapters could sort of act as their own almost magazine article, you know, almost like as if it were 30 or so individual stories that when you put them together, they're a fantastic narrative. But if you put this thing on the back of the toilet, maybe, and you just jump in there and you open it to page 135 and decide, I'm going to read a tale of three centers. It works that way too. Is that, did you kind of structure it that way on purpose or um, did it just kind of work out that way? Yeah, I, I, I have no qualms about being the uh, back of the toilet book for people. I, I hear from more people who tell me that they read my stuff uh, in uh, in the bathroom than uh, <laughs> than I probably ever wanted to. Uh, uh, I think I got a a core audience built up of uh, people uh, uh, sneaking off uh, from the work cubicle and uh, heading to the uh, company restroom and, and reading whatever it is I've I've just done. Um, yeah, I mean, realistically. It's great to be able to sit down and just have an afternoon to read a book, to really dive into something and really sink your teeth into it. Most of us don't have that these days. And, uh, you know, I, I, I understood going in that, uh, you know, to be able to sit down, you, a lot of these stories do build on each other and, and they reference back. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of crossover from chapter to chapter, but, you can only go so far with that because it, it, it you know, realistically, yeah, a lot of people are going to be able to sit down and do maybe one chapter, you know, maybe I can get a chapter in today, or maybe if I'm listening to the audio book, I can, I can get a chapter in on, on the way to work. Ride. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's, and that's about it. And that's uh, so, uh, yeah, I did, I did want to make sure that it was something that could, could be chopped up a little bit like that. And also, uh, you know, look, there, there may be certain things where certain readers might say, you know what, I'm not all that interested in this, or I'm not all that interested in this particular era, and they want to skip ahead. Uh, yeah, and that's, you know, it's it's got to be uh, done in a way that uh, that they can do that. Nobody wants to ever feel uh, like they're doing a homework assignment. And, uh, you know, I, I said in a few different places that I, I wanted to make sure that this book didn't feel like a textbook, uh, and uh, you know I didn't want it to feel like it was an assignment for people. So it, it is a quick read. Uh, it is uh, you know something where I, I, I try to uh, try to keep the chapters moving, and uh, you know there's a lot of the in between each of the longer chapters. There's a shorter, uh, you know, just kind of a quick weird story that uh, uh, it, the kind of thing that you know I think people will uh, will enjoy. Um, but it's a, you know, can, can kind of quickly hit on and get in and get out sort of thing. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that, that you found it that way because, uh, that's, that certainly was one of the things that we were aiming for was that, you know, this, this can't feel like a, it can't feel like a slog where you're, you're sitting down going, Oh man, I got three more chapters to get through. Uh, it's, it's, it's gotta be light and it's gotta keep moving. Yeah. And I wanted to say too the athletic app. Uh, has totally ruined the in and out bathroom experience for me because <laughs> I get in there now and it's like, all right, open the athletic four hockey stories, two football stories. Oh my God. I've been in here 20 minutes. Um, let's talk about Lindros for a second. He, I have a cool Buffalo hockey story and I, this is one of those Buffalo hockey stories that's grown over the years, but I was there 
uh, when Lindros was not wanting to go to the Sioux, I think it was the Sioux, right? That he wouldn't go to in the L. Um, yeah. Yeah. When he was kind of that, that early fall that year, he played a few games for the, the team in his town in the provincial hockey league. The, um, the, uh, the, you know, the junior a league that doesn't take away like college eligibility. So the junior Sabres are in this league. And at the time they were called the Niagara Scenics and they were named after a bus company. And they played at West Seneca Town Rink. And Lindros's team played them in one of the games he played there. And if you ask now, there was 10,000 people in that place, you know, that night. Sure. And me and my dad and I, we lived in West Seneca where their rink is. And we went down there at 4 o'clock because I had hockey practice, not knowing anything about it. And my dad was talking to the, you know, the Zamboni driver or whatever. And he's like, oh, you know, uh, Eric Lindros is going to be here tonight. It's going to be crazy or whatever. So we came in. And we went and watched the game, and it was crazy. I mean, the second you looked out on the ice, you just seen this guy out there that it was like, it looked like a midget playing might. You, you, like, you know what I yep. mean? It just looked like a man amongst boys. And then they dropped the puck, and it looked like, you know, it looked like, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. Like, he was just in a it different was, yeah. world. You know, I mean, this is a guy who he was, he was, I mean, Eric Lindros looked like a man among boys in that Canada cup in 91 where he was 18 and, and not playing the Nordiques, but uh, you know, he's, he's out there. Uh, he, he looked like a man among boys, even though he was the boy and everybody else were the, were, were the men. And, and, you know, he's, he's out there slamming into all Samuelson and, and all of that stuff. And you're just watching it go on. There's no way that anyone's going to be able to stop this kid in the NHL. I know concussions slowed him, but when you when you think back about his career, how close do you think he came to? I mean, it's obviously not Lemieux, and he's obviously not Gretzky. You know, he's not. He didn't get there, and maybe at the time in 1990, we felt like he he would or he might or whatever. But I mean, just just curious for a hockey opinion here. Like when you look back on Lindros's career, like how good do you think he got? Like how how close to filling the huge shoes we set for him did, do you think he got? I mean, he, he got there. The The problem is he, he didn't stay there. Right. And, and the injuries obviously had a lot to do with it, the concussions as well as some other things. I mean, even in his rookie season, he only played something like 60 games. But, I mean, he, you know, he won an MVP. He, uh, you know, he, he got Flyers to the final. Uh, you know, there, there were certainly those flashes of it. He's not one of those guys uh you know like like some of the, the the bigger busts or disappointments where you say you know what once he got to the nhl we just didn't see it uh you know those those first few years especially that he was in the league you absolutely saw it i mean there were nights where you're just watching this guy going there, there's no stopping him uh and uh and you know it was just such a uh you know it, it certainly especially given that you know we're talking 20 years ago it's a different era back then you know today a guy who's six foot five and can run over everyone, uh, yeah. I mean, there, there's certainly room for that in the game, but it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, have the same impact that it did back then when it was such a, a much more physical game. And you know, here you had this guy that was, uh, you know, the, he he was he was his own enforcer. He was he was Mario Lemieux with Bob Probert mixed right in uh, in in the same package. And, 
it, it was early on, uh, you know, those, those first few years until he starts getting hurt and has the falling out with the Flyers and, and all the all the stuff that goes from there. Um, you know, I would argue he, he absolutely lived up to the hype and was on track to be that player we all thought he was going to be. Uh, and then and then the injuries come in, and even when he was healthy in the lineup, he never really seemed to be completely healthy and completely at 100%. And uh, it, it, it seemed to uh, affect his game and how he played and, and kind of took away some of that physical element because he couldn't be the, the bull in the china shop anymore because uh, it, it, he knew that there was at least a chance that he was going to be the one on the receiving end. So uh, it, it was definitely a disappointment. I mean, we've we've had, um, as hockey fans, just you know, some bad luck over the years. A lot of really compelling uh, players whose, whose careers have been cut short or diminished by, by injuries and other things. And uh, it's it's unfortunate that Eric Lindros is uh, certainly up high on that list. Yeah, Mike Bossy comes to mind. Uh Mike Bossy, like Meryl Lemieux, I mean, you go down the list, Pavel you guys, Burry. That, uh, or just Pavel Bure, another one, uh, Korea, Neely, uh, I mean, Neely, yeah. uh, Forsberg, just uh, just guys where you, you look back and go, like, Pat LaFontaine. We wish we just had a few more years of them where, uh, you know, you could have seen them at the absolute peak of what they could be. Yeah, I was, th- I mean, you think about that Stevens hit, I mean, that's, a, that's three games in today's NHL, right? I mean, even in the playoffs. I think. I mean, it's oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's that's absolutely the sort of hit. You know, I mean, Stevens is, is kind of a fascinating case because he's the, you know, I don't know if there's anybody in in hockey whose reputation uh, from when they played is so different from what it would be today. I mean, if, if, Scott, if Scott Stevens was playing today, he'd be Tom Wilson. He'd be that guy uh, that that people just, figured you know it had to be stopped we got to get off the ice he's going to hurt somebody uh or he would be somebody who had changed his game and and wouldn't be scott stevens and uh you know back then i know it's i know it's said often but it's it's worth reiterating back then scott stevens when it came to time to hit scott stevens was squeaky clean he was absolutely throwing textbook clean hits uh including the one on eric lindros it's just that the league um rightfully so uh, eventually decided, wait a second, we can't have these types of hits because the, the, the long-term damage they're doing to guys like Eric Lindroth or like Paul Correa. I mean, that 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 famous moment in the in the Stanley Cup final in 2003 where Paul Correa gets KO'd by Scott Stevens uh, and he's lying on the ice yeah. and, he's, and he's just staring up and, he, and then he comes back out and scores the goal and, you know, the famous call, he's off the floor and on the board. And I, I mean, at the time, that was such a, an amazing moment. And you look back on it now and you go, what the hell were we all thinking? How did we think that was a great moment? Somebody getting knocked out cold and then being thrown back out there on the ice just a few shifts later. And, uh, yeah, they score a goal. That's great. But but what were we doing letting that uh, letting either of those things happen? And it's it's kind of one of those things, and it, and it is a thing that gets touched on a few times in the book, just the, the changing perceptions uh, and how we all view some of these moments through different lenses in time. Uh, and and that uh, those different lenses can give us a very different views uh, to certain certain moments. A couple more minutes here with Sean uh, at Down Goes Brown on Twitter. Uh, the Down Goes Brown history of the NHL, the world's most beautiful sport and the world's most ridiculous league. I was glad you gave uh, a chapter to the 1992-93 season because that was a really fun one in my life. I was the perfect age where 
basically all I cared about was hockey. And of course, living in Buffalo is a pretty incredible season with Mario Lemieux, or excuse me, Mario Lemieux, uh, with uh, Alexander Wilgilney getting 76 goals and the Sabres winning the first, first round series of essentially my lifetime. I guess they won one when I was like two. Uh, but getting the sweep uh, against Boston and the Mayday goal. And then unfortunately, getting swept by Montreal was actually a better series than that because all the games were 4-3, and a few of them were in overtime. Of course, Montreal went 10-0 in that playoff run in overtime, and Mogilny broke his leg, uh, unfortunately, in that series to ending what was a dream season for him. But wow, what a fun year. It's one where you look back at the stats, and it was like, we got defensemen with 40 goals and I mean, just, just unbelievably cool year. Two guys getting 76, you know, Pat LaFontaine, I think had like 150 points or something on the wing with, uh, with Mo- or on playing center with Mogilny on his wing. And I just remember when I went to a game that year, I just remember every time Mogilny touched the puck, you moved up a little bit, you know, you moved up in your seat a little bit yep. and uh, it was just such a fun season. I was glad you, he spent the time on it in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's my favorite season of all time. Uh, if, if people uh, have have followed my work over the years, they know that I I, I have a uh, a very unique ability to take pretty much any topic and tie it back to that ninety two ninety three season. I I did a piece for Sportsnet uh, a year ago uh, when when the league was having its hundredth anniversary, where I ranked all one hundred NHL seasons from worst to best, and and that was my pick. For being the best, uh, the, the best season uh, in the history of the league, and I, you know, I, I kind of grabbed that and, and focused on that for uh, for the better part of a chapter, uh, for for a couple of reasons, and you know, the first reason is that a lot of what I do, both in the book and and just in sort of my day to day writing, uh, I, I'm very critical of this league, and uh, and you know, I. I I have been critical of, of Gary Bettman. I've been critical of the rules. I've been critical of the way that that the league is presented and run. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, and and I think rightly so. I'm not doing it uh, to be a hot take. I'm not doing it to to uh, for attention. I'm doing it because this is you know that I'm I'm sharing my uh, in my honest opinion based on many decades of being a hockey fan. Uh, but I think it's important to to stop. And look back and point to a season like 1992-93 for a couple of reasons. Number one, as, as kind of the counterexample, and say, you know what, this is what hockey can be. If we don't have to accept the dead puck era and the defensive thinking and shot blocking, goaltending, and all of this stuff, it's fun when you have a player on your team scoring 76 goals. It's fun when you have guys getting 140 points. You know, Doug Gilmore shattered the Maple Leafs scoring record that year, 127 points, uh, shattered the record, never been close since. He finished seventh in league scoring that year. You know, it was a fun year. There, there were some crazy numbers being put up, uh, and, uh, and and some some crazy games. And um, you know, I, I think it's it's worthwhile to kind of point to that and go, "This is what we can be." And, and it, it could be this again. Wouldn't it be great if Connor McDavid got to play in a league where it didn't take 110 points to win the Art Ross Trophy? It took 150. Wouldn't that be more fun? Um, but at the same time, I think it's also just even outside the context of criticism or coming up with ways to improve the game to just kind of take a moment and go, man, you know what? When everything clicks, this sport is so great. I mean, it really is. We, we all complain. We all have our things we wish were different, but when everything's clicking on all cylinders, 
it, this really is the the greatest sport in the world and you know that that is the, there are those moments where you take any sports fan i don't care if they like hockey or not you sit them down you show them the nhl at its very best uh, uh and and you'll hook them and if there's a problem with this league it's that we don't show our very best very often uh anywhere near enough and and, and we don't hook people but uh, it is there, and it's uh, you know sometimes it's just right beneath the surface. And '93 was a good example of a year where it just kind of all bubbled over, uh, and we got to see it almost every night. Uh, and it's it's uh, you know, to my mind, it's worthwhile looking back and, and celebrating uh, what it looks like when this league is is really at its very best uh, and being everything it can be. Bray, Robitaille, Lemieux, Solani, McGillney all had 60 goals or more. There was 20 players, 20 players plus with 100 points because 20 was a tie between Fleury and Francis with 100. And Pat LaFontaine finished with 148 points and lost out on the Art Ross Trophy by 12. Uh, the book, again, is called The Down Goes Brown, History of the NHL, The World's Most Beautiful Sport, The World's Most Ridiculous League by Sean McIndoo at Down Goes Brown on Twitter. Uh, the book's available anywhere you buy books, obviously, easy to find, and a great Christmas gift. I'm going to let you out of here on this. Give me 30 seconds. That's about all you got left. 30 seconds on the 2018 Sabres and how you see the rest of this year playing out because, Sean, they own the city right now. And uh, it's been a long time since we've had anything close to this. And um, just give me 30 seconds on what you see in your You, your you know what? Ball. Yeah, I I know they own the city because I, uh, I, I do a weekly power rankings. I've been doing them for four or five years, and the Sabres have always been – I do a top five and a bottom five. The Sabres have always been – bottom five. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was a big deal <laughs> when two. they would get out of the bottom five, even for a week. Yeah, bottom two. And this week was the first week in, the, in, in all the years I've been doing this that they're in the top five. I had them slotted in number five on the strength of that win streak, um, you know, on the strength of how the season is going. And uh, I got to be honest, I thought Sabres fans would be happy. And instead, I got a lot of trash talk from Sabres fans saying they weren't high enough. Right, because we beat all the teams. Minnesota ahead of us. Yeah, we beat them. <laughs> exactly. We've beaten everybody. Apparently, that number five is. So I don't. I mean, there's a part of me that kind of wants to, you know, go to Sabres fans and go, hey, guys, man, you know, maybe hold your roll just a right. little bit here. Let's, right. Uh, We're let's, trying. Let's settle down. But there's also, there's also part of me that says, you know what, you guys have eaten so much crap over the years. Uh, enjoy it. Even if, it, even if it doesn't last, they got some real tough games coming up on the schedule. Uh, even if it doesn't last, so enjoy it while you can. Have fun with it, and maybe it's the start of something big, and maybe it's not. And we look back and uh, and say it was just a streak, but uh, enjoy it, man. I'm 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 sincerely happy for Sabres fans, and I hope you guys make the playoffs because I think the Leafs are going to be there, and I think a Leafs Sabres playoff oh, series would just be fine. unreal. That would that would that would be right up there with with any of the other great rivalries you want to name today. So let's uh, let's make that happen. Let's let. Let's let Tampa have that number one spot and uh, have the Leafs and Sabres go 2-3 and uh, sort it out in, in April. And, hey, no matter what happens, it, it certainly does feel like a window opening. You know, it's not the end of a run. It's, it's, it's not like we're the Blackhawks here. You know, it's a lot of 20-plus, 20 20-ish-year-old 20, kids, so we're excited. Sean, I got to let you out. I know you got another one. Thank you so much for this. Love the book. Uh, we'll do it again soon, and uh, we'll talk more uh, current NHL next time I get you, get you tracked down. Right on. Sounds good. Thank Th you. Thank you, buddy.
I want to thank Greg Bishop from Sports Illustrated and Sean McIndoe from The Athletic for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this week's episode of the podcast and all of our podcasts dating back all the way to 2011 on our SoundCloud page. It is soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and wherever podcasts are found. If you go finding us and you can't, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll try to fix that for you. Also, if I owe you a book, hang in there. should be there this week. If not, hit me up on that email again. It's thesportscasters at gmail.com. Um, also, I want to mention my good friend Peter Winson. His podcast is Greetings from Allentown. It's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. He has a new episode out today as well, and it's about the NWA Worldwide from 624, 1989. So I'm looking forward to listening to that as soon as I'm done with this. Don't forget, Peter and I also did a podcast on 87 to 98 Survivor Series, which can be found just below that podcast on his feed and on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, uh, which you can also find on Apple Podcasts. Whew. With all that said, um, don't know what's going on next week. Still booking, uh, kind of finishing this up. It feels a little bit early, uh, compared to other weeks. So, uh, I'm working on some things for next week. Hopefully should be a great show. Booking's been going pretty well. Uh, and I'm pretty grateful for that. All right. One last thing this week. Uh, I wanted to talk about Elf on a Shelf. Um, Elf on a Shelf is, is a new thing. It's not something that I did when I was a kid. It was not a tradition in our family, and to be honest, I don't know if it even existed. I don't remember hearing about Elf in a Shelf until three, four years ago. Here's what it is if you haven't heard of it. There's a little elf. It's a you know a plush toy, a stuffed animal, I guess, of an elf. And they come in boy and girl. And the gimmick is that every night this elf goes to the North Pole and tells Santa Claus if your child was good or bad. And then it returns to the home in a different spot than it was the day before. So the child wakes up and they look for it. And there's a book that goes with it and a backstory and you can't touch it because if you touch it, it loses its magic. And to me, it's the dumbest shit. And I was totally against it. I didn't want to do it. And um, the day after Christmas last year, uh, Tammy found one at Walmart for like six bucks for the whole set. And we got it, and we decided we were going to do it for Paula this year. And if I've learned anything from Jim Florentine, uh, Jim Florentine, the host of the Comedy Metal Midget podcast, which is one I recommend, especially if you have rage in you and you want to rage sometimes, is that it's okay to hate shit. And I hate a lot of shit. But if it makes your kid happy, it doesn't matter a bit if you hate it. And, man, does Elf on a Shelf make my kid happy. It's unbelievable. Uh, we started a couple days ago. Here's a really cool thing. So you have to name your elf on a shelf. And uh, the day that we read Paula the story, Paula and I had actually been watching WrestleMania 3 uh, during lunch. Sometimes during lunch we'll watch wrestling or watch the A-Team or whatever. And she, the British Bulldogs and Tito Santana uh, were wrestling the Hart Foundation Danny Davis. And in the very beginning of the match, Matilda comes down on the cart. If you remember at WrestleMania 3, they had the mobile carts. And runs into the ring and chases down the mouth of the south. And Paula thought this was the funniest thing. And she loved Matilda. So that was on her mind. Matilda is such a cute doggy, and she loved it. So she, when Tammy asked her what she wanted to name her elf in a shelf, she said she wanted to name it Matilda. 
So the elf on the shelf is named Matilda. And uh, we explained to her what it was. And the first night she went to bed. And we put it in the Christmas tree. And it was just her and I the next day because Tammy was at work. We woke up and I said, we got to go find Matilda. And she ran out and she found her and she was laughing and so happy. Like, it was amazing. And I was like, you know what? Jim is so right because no matter how stupid I think this is or, like, how dumb I think Alpha and a Shelf is, this is awesome. Like, seeing her this happy is awesome. And then today was the second day and the same thing. We hit her in a different spot. And it took, like, three minutes and there was all this excitement of, like, trying to find Matilda and where's Matilda. And um, it was just so cool. And... um. Man, I don't hate Elf in a Shelf nearly as much as I did two days ago, right? Because it just doesn't matter, right? I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for her, and she loves it. And it's a great spot to be in as a parent when you get to that point where you totally understand that it's not about you anymore. It's about her. And it doesn't matter what I like. If she likes it, let's do it. Like, I don't like Paw Patrol. I think that's the shittiest kid show I've seen so far with her. But she loves it, so when she wants to watch Paw Patrol, I watch it with her. I mean, I try to suggest other things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, she knows every member of the A-team. Don't forget that. So it's not like it's just a Paw Patrol marathon around here. But my main point is, when it's for her, it could be anything. I don't care, because it's for her.